Hello, animation fans, and welcome to another iAnimate podcast. I'm your host, Larry Vasquez, and you're listening to episode 32. Joining me in this podcast will be LaShawn Thomas, a 2D animator, uh, character designer. This guy wears all sorts of different hats. He's worked on such series as Boondocks, Legend of Korra, Black Dynamite, and uh, a bit of a world traveler, I guess you'd say. Uh, he spent some time in Korea working on some of the shows over there. I had uh, recently came across him via a uh, retweet from Jamal Bradley, one of my uh, former instructors here, on a project that LaShawn was working on, his Kickstarter project. And it just looked like a very interesting project, um, and I thought, you know what, let's see if we can get some time in with this guy, talk about it, talk about his career, how he got into the animation industry, and just make for a, a unique and interesting podcast. So without further ado, let's bring on LaShawn Thomas. Hey, how's it going, Larry? Doing very well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you. Thanks for hollering at me. I you appreciate, bet. Uh, you know, when Jamal, Jamal and I go way back, you know, since back to like 2005. So uh-huh. when he hit me up and told me that um, you were reaching out to me, I was like, yeah, I think that's great. You know, I animate cool. I was very familiar with that site. So when he told me that, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, I, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. I wasn't sure what the scheduling was. So when you reached out to me, I was like, oh, OK, cool. Let's do it. We- so, yeah. I had Jamal Bradley as uh, my instructor. Jeez, that was a good couple of years ago, but it was for the Workshop 5. And oh. he's a great guy. And so he, I think he had uh, tweeted your your Kickstarter. And so I saw it, and I thought, man, that sounds great. So um, I'm always looking for you know interesting podcasts, people to interview. So that's when I, I thought, hey, let me holler at Jamal and see if he can uh, hook this up here. So... First off, like thank you for your time on this. I think it's- oh, of course, man. Thank you. You know, I, you know, it's always alarming to me. You know, I, you know, uh, especially with this being, you know, my first time trying something like this. You know, it's it's all new to me. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, me, me being so conservative inside looking out, anyone who reaches out to me, you know, even if a dollar is thrown at it, I'm just like, you know, it's, it's, someone gave me a dollar. Who is this person? You know, so. The same thing goes for 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 you know podcasts and interview coverage. Anytime someone reaches out to me and say, "Hey, we want to cover this," I'm always kind of grateful. So, you know, I appreciate the reach out. It means a lot. Awesome. I, I like for my podcast to kind of get behind the person. I, I like talking with the people and getting to know the people. So don't feel like you're rambling. You just keep going, man. Okay. Okay. I'll do my best. That sound good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, first off, I always like to start out with kind of where you come from, where, you know, how you got into animation and what are some of the skill sets you currently you do now? I noticed on your uh, Kickstarter bio, you know, you're doing your producer and director and things of that nature. So just kind of let us know kind of where you come from, how you got into animation and uh, take it from there. Sure, man. I'm from New York, New York City. You know, I'm born and raised in the South Bronx and, uh, you know, uh, up on the east side, mm-hmm. not not the Yankee Stadium side. <laughs> the side, you know, I'm on, I'm on the east 152nd between Tenton and Union Avenue, and I was raised in the projects, John Adams projects. Mm. Um, you know, I'm 39, so I was born in 1975. So, you know, it was a pretty pretty crazy time growing up. Hip hop was just born, you know, as a culture, um, and growing up in the Bronx, watching hip hop grow up as I grew up. Um, Reaganomics, you know, uh, the, the, the war on drugs, the crack epidemic is a very, very, very turbulent time period growing up between 75 and 85 and even in, in the mid 90s. So there's just a lot of things happening growing up around that time period. And I'm one of five. I have a, my immediate family. I have 
two brothers and two sisters. Um, and, where, do you, where do you fall in that line? I'm, I'm the second born, so, okay. you know, it, it, my brother was the first born, and, uh, you know, hallelujah, you know, and then um, I was the second born, another boy, and it's like, oh, okay, and then <laughs> the third born is the first girl, hallelujah, <laughs> so I kind of got squashed in the middle <laughs> You know, uh, uh, I, I I got into drawing um, uh, kind of similar to the way most kids, you know, get into drawing. But I used to copy my older brother a lot when I was a kid because, you know, he was the firstborn and he got a lot of attention. And I always believed that I would never got as much attention as he did. So I would try to, you know, mimic him. And, um, you know, drawing was one of those things. So uh, the, the, the idea of illustration, you know, at a very young age came from copying my brother and, um, you know, as we got older, uh, we used to always draw together. You know, we lived on the 19th floor in John Adams Project, so we had really good sunlight. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, our windows would kind of serve as light boxes. We would, like, rip out comic pages and <laughs> nice. put them up against the window and, and just loosely paper and just trace, like, superhero drawings and stuff. So we, we were pretty pretty active, uh, creative kids at that time. So, I, you know, I got into that at a very young age, and it wasn't until I got a, lot of it, a little bit older um, when the drawing thing used to get me in trouble in school, um, I, was, I wasn't a bad kid in, in the sense that I was like, you know, getting in trouble with the law or anything like that. I was just very mischievous. I just didn't like doing what I was told. So I kind of just wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, when you grow up a certain age, you know, you start developing your own personality. And it kind of got me in trouble. But, but I would always get in trouble usually for drawing in school when I should be working. Um, and I, I didn't. I had a circle of friends who weren't very good for me either because they were doing the same thing. So we used to always like uh, draw like mini comics. I remember in like the fourth, third or fourth grade, me and my friends, my teachers knew that we were trouble whenever we were together. So they would separate us. He'd be in the front behind the teacher's desk by the chalkboard, he'd be way in the back, <laughs> and we would still like. I would start this comic book of like these martial artists and these little boxes killing each other with like red markers and stuff. And then I would give it to him between second classes and then he would like continue the comic and then give it back to me by lunch. So we would do that all the time. So even growing up in school, you know, I was fortunate to have a lot of friends who uh, kind of nurtured that creative aspect of, you know, of, of artwork, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my circle. So and my mom, after a while, was getting so frustrated with me we getting in trouble for drawing, it kind of transformed later on as I got older and says, well, this is something he might be into. So when we started looking for high schools, my mother was the one who kind of like took the bull by the horns and tried to actually enroll me in a high school that centered around the arts. Nice. So um, I rarely give my mom enough credit in my interviews, but she was kind of a catalyst to kind of maintain that thing. Like, well, if you, you know, if this is getting you in trouble in school, there must be a reason. Let's use it profitably, huh? Yeah, yeah, you know, so she so she enrolled me in, in in Julia Richmond High School, but that wasn't the school I wanted to go to. I wanted to go to the <clears throat> the School of Art and Design in New York City, a very popular school at the time. Um, and it was actually the school that uh, another illustrator named uh, Joe Matarera went to. We were kind of the same age, so I didn't know him at the time, but that was the school I wanted to go to, and I I I, I took an art class. That, you know, prior to going to enrolling into a high school. For art and illustration, I always kind of did what I wanted, and I and even before I got enrolled, I knew there was some kind of like uh, review period or portfolio review kind of thing. So I, you know, I kind of threw together some of my best drawings. You know, I was 13 at the time, mind you. So, 
and I went to these high schools and, and I went to art and design high school and I thought I could just like draw what I want and then give them the portfolio and just sit back and be like, look how epic this stuff is. <laughs> you know you want me, you know you want me kind of thing. And I had to take a drawing test and it just completely caught me off guard. So what eventually wound up happening was I failed that test because I was just, no one's ever asked me to draw something on the spot and then like follow directions. So I failed that test and I wound up going to the school 10 blocks up, which was Julia Richmond High School. And I was on a program called um, Talent Unlimited, TU. And they focused on uh, the humanities, you know, uh, uh, chorus, dance, drama, and the arts. And I was in the art program. Um, and it was a program that would take place from 3 o'clock to 6 p.m. after regular classes. So I was already, like, even as a young teenager growing up, I was kind of enrolled in these kind of arts programs. It wasn't like I just decided at 18, you know, having no exposure to art, that I wanted to be a comic book artist. <laughs> I was kind of low-key being ushered into this kind of, you know, career in the arts. My mom was very supportive of that. Even though she didn't really quite understand what it was I was doing, she knew that was something I was into. So, you know, I always give give credit to my mom. That's one of your biggest obstacles as a kid growing up is, you know, convincing your family mm-hmm. that's something that's going to be good for you. You know, and then when you grow up in a poor neighborhood, um, a lot of times art is kind of unanimously viewed as kind of like not necessarily a lucrative career move. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> you know, they're like, oh, what? You want to draw? I don't know anything about that, you know, because my parents came up through hard times. So they're just like, what? Like. You gonna be a doctor or a lawyer or something? You know what I mean? You're not, you know, it's a comic book. What is that? You know? So, you know, I, I thank my mom for really being supportive and not really knowing what direction I wanted to go. But she knew arts was something I was into, so she tried to make sure she had some kind of input on that before I became a teenager. So, after I was done with high school, I got a job at a sporting goods store and I started to float. I didn't know what college I wanted to go to, so I, I decided I wanted to become a comic book artist. Uh, one of them worked for Marvel and DC. You know, they were located in New York City. So after at that point, I was convinced I wanted to be a comic book illustrator. So I started working on my portfolio of comic books. You know, uh, a, a nice selection of comic book pages that I would try to submit to Marvel. And at the same time, I was working part time at a sporting goods store in New York City called Modell Sporting Goods. And I've told this story before, but um, my manager at the sporting goods store's name was Sean Henderson. I'll never forget his name. Um, big guy, burly, mustache, you know, always wore a suit. And I would like, I hated my job. I, you know, I worked in the sneaker department. I hated dealing with people in the sneaker department. So, you know, just to pass the time, I would kind of hide in the back of the stock room or whatever, and I would just sketch on the back of these sales tags, like old dated discount sales tags. And my boss came over and he was like, you're not supposed to do that. You can't draw on that. We recycle that stuff. And I'm like, all right, cool. So he took it from me. And then he came back and was like, yo, this is kind of cool. Like, this is, this is a cool drawing. Like, this? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, he's like, you're pretty good. And then a couple of days later went by and he, he came up to me randomly. And we're closing up and he was just kind of like, hey, you know, I just want to let you know, you know, my wife, she works uptown on 30-something Street. She's an uh, art director for a children's accessories company for uh, Disney. And I heard the word Disney. I'm like, oh, you know, cool, you know. He was like, I'll hook you up with an internship. And I was like, eh, I want to be Jim Lee. I don't want to be working <laughs> at this, at this, you know what I'm saying, at this children's school, uh, you know, just doing backpacks and handbags. So, but I saw it as an opportunity. I said, hey, why not? I put together a portfolio of some of my so-called best comic book pages, not knowing what I was in store for. And I went up there to 37th Street. It was right across the street from Madison Square Garden. 
And it turns out that this place was a children's accessories company, and they would design, they would get the licenses from like big companies like Disney or Nickelodeon, and they would get their model packs and then put their characters on like mini tote bags and duffel bags and you know mini backpacks for kids, boys, and girls. And no one could draw at the studio, so I'm rolling in, you know, dirty kid from the Bronx. You know. <laughs> my best whatever suit or whatever and I got this giant portfolio with a broken zipper and like it didn't close so I like held the, the, the handles together so it looked like it was closed or whatever <laughs> and I went in there and I showed them my stuff and they were just kind of like huh like this is interesting you know but they didn't have any need for artists there because everyone worked in Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop mind you this is like 1996 96 97-ish mm-hmm. and um Needless to say, I didn't get the gig. They saw my stuff and they said, hey, you know, this stuff is great. You know, we'll give you a call. And then, I, you know, I went back to my job. and I didn't get it. And then two months later, my manager came up to me again and was like, hey, you know, there's an opening for the boys department. Same position. Because they had different departments. They had dudes handling the boys department, which was like the WWF license. And then they had uh, certain departments being handled. They were handling Sanrio Smiles, Hello Kitty brand, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. So... Um, so I, you know, I went there again, and at that point, you know, I was getting a little frustrated with the whole comic book thing at Marvel. I was doing a lot of samples for free, and you know, it, it was, I was just getting a little frustrated. So I kind of took that gig, and I wound up getting the job. But it wasn't like a paying job; it was just like a, 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 a base. I was basically like an intern PA, and I was unpaid. I only came in on Mondays and Wednesdays, and my job was. Pretty pretty basic, you know. I would organize the backpack samples in the back. They had like a whole wall on on either side where you like organize different vinyls and you know uh, velcros and stuff like that. I would organize these ripped up, cut up, torn up samples in the back. I would order breakfast and lunch and you know make photocopies for all the artists and stuff like that. And at that point, you know, I was actually kind of glad I had that because you know you know me coming from the projects, like I thought that was a good look, you know, like I. <laughs> I'm coming from from the South Bronx to 37th Street in Manhattan. You know, I'm at this nice office. You know, they got these computers. And, you know, so I thought, like, man, if this is an internship, at least it'll look good on my portfolio. You know what I mean? So um, long story short, right around the time the Disney animated feature Hercules came out, mm-hmm. uh, this company had gotten the rights to produce. To, they, they were jockeying for the licensing to, to get this brand so that they can, you know, uh, uh, use that licensing money to create a brand of, of, of backpacks and stuff like that. The art directors went out to Magic. Uh, this, it's, it's like this uh, apparel convention that happens every year in Las Vegas. And they went out to this Magic show. They, they brought back the materials they had from Disney. At the time, Disney hadn't finished the film yet. The way these, these licenses work is that the, the companies invite these, these studios, these licensing companies, out like a year or so early to give them as much headway as, can, as they can. That way they can produce them when the movie's out, exactly, right? Exactly. So nice. that it's released at the same time. So, you know, Hercules was, I think it was behind schedule or whatever the reason was. They didn't have a final design of Hercules. So when they came back, they were kind of like, this is all we have. We don't really have anything. And they were like, oh, well, hey, LaShawn is a good illustrator. Hey, LaShawn, what do you think about, you think you could do some designs for us, some, some sketches or whatever? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, why not, you know? Moment of truth. Like, you know, let me show you what, why you guys brought me here, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I, uh, so needless to say, um, I, um, I did the, the gig, and I wound up going to the library. And remember those? 
I was going to the <laughs> library, and, um, and uh, I, I, I borrowed a couple of books on the Hercules storyline, the myth, you know, the seven tasks, and the Hedra, and the Cyclops, and I did like these different drawings based off the basic premise of the Hercules storyline, but in this kind of Disney style, in like different circumstances and, and whatever. I did like like twenty five or thirty of these things, and then I colored them up with like markers and stuff. And I did this over a span of like a few days. And then I brought them in on a Monday and they were like, these are great. And then, you know, Tuesday I didn't, I wasn't there. You know, I don't, I only come in on Mondays and Wednesdays. And apparently on Tuesday there was an art direction, uh, art direction meeting and the, the, the vice president, his name is Jeffrey. And I forget, it looked like traditional, like, you know, mover and shaker, Jewish guy, you know, salt and pepper beard, curly hair, glasses, suit, you know, it was just kind of like, who the hell did these, you know? And they were just kind of like, oh, it's this kid LaShawn. He comes in on Mondays and Wednesdays, and we asked him to do some designs. And he was like, hmm, okay. So then Wednesday comes, and I'm in the back organizing samples, and Jeffrey, the vice president, is on the opposite wall. And he just kind of, like, yells at me. He goes, hey, LaShawn, doesn't even turn his back. He's like, LaShawn. And I'm like, uh, yeah. He's like, what do you think about coming to work for us? And I'm like, uh, uh yeah, I could do that. And he's like, oh. Hired, I'll you know I'll talk to you later. We'll have the people come take care of me. And I'm like, all right, cool. I didn't know what that meant. Have the people come take care of me. I'm like, all right, cool. And not even 15 minutes later, I get on the phone and call Sean Henderson, my manager at Model, to tell him I quit. And he was like, I know you got the job. Amy told me last night that was his wife. Amy told me you got the job last night. Don't f it up because I was always late to the office. You know. So, <laughs> so that's kind of how that story went. And that's the first time that I actually and I'm I was making like. 250 bucks, you know, maybe 300 bucks a week. Uh-huh. But it was like, it was, I thought I was balling, man. Like, I had a cat <laughs> table, I had a computer, I had a cubicle. It was a big deal. I was still doing the intern stuff. <laughs> but you're getting paid for it now. I was, you know, ordering people's breakfast and lunch, but they would give me these jobs from time to time where I would have to do, like, for example, you see a, um, a Winnie the Pooh. Umbrella. You see a kid walking around with a Winnie the Pooh umbrella. The umbrella itself would have this kind of all over Winnie the Pooh character print, but the handle itself would be this kind of like plastic molded version of Winnie the Pooh as a handle. I would be the guy to do those turns. Nice. And it would get shipped overseas to China and get corrected or whatever. And sometimes my stuff would have to get fixed because Disney would have like certified Disney artists correcting content in the series Bible that sometimes my drawings weren't official, so they would have to hire a Disney artist to kind of fix my drawings and then send it back to us. But that was like, that was the start of my transition to my drawing style and being more exposed to animation. Because, you know, I didn't go to college for animation. Like, I, I, you know, that was my trajectory. So I got so, a question for you, though. When, oh. when you got the, um, you said they were Disney animators who would make corrections on your stuff. Did you ever get to see those corrections? Were you able to see and learn from them from that? I did. I did, actually. That's okay. a good question. I did see those. I was trying to keep the story short, but, I, yeah, I did see a lot of the changes. Um, and Disney had a very, very and, – and I wish I had – I used to own copies of this stuff because I remember when I was younger, I had made sure I'd make photocopies of this stuff. But they had this extensive series Bible on how to draw Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Goofy. It, it was just the most amazing. There was, like, over, like, 300 pages long and, like, just – I mean, like – I truly gained a lot of respect for the design of Mickey Mouse in general. Mm-hmm. Like it's just actually pretty pretty impressive. Um like he had a he had like 100 pages just 
on just on Mickey Mouse, like how to draw him, the angle, how to get it exactly on point, how to, you know, you, you never see Mickey from directly over the top. He's always at a three-quarter angle. You know, there's a certain angle you have to draw him in order for him to look like Mickey, and when he doesn't look like Mickey, it's very, very fascinating and, and, and a really, really, like, you know, lesson on, on design, you know what I mean, and why it worked. So uh, I had those books to follow, but, you know, you, you, you could spend years trying to perfect the perfect Mickey, you know, for Disney to approve it, you know. It's a very, very meticulous process. Mm-hmm. So then that's how you started learning some of the animation that way here. Yeah, I think that's kind of how my my style started to go from uh, environmental design techniques like cross-hatching and shadowing, which was popular at the time, you know, uh-huh. in the 90s, image comics, um, to going for a more sort of deadline weight. And I, I was able to, you know, that job had a lot of, it wasn't necessarily a revolving door, but they had a lot of art directors coming in and out over the years, and I was able to meet some really talented people, and I met the, the the wife of a gentleman who would later become my mentor named Joel Rogers, and this was right around the late 90s when Macromedia Flash came around, mm. which was later bought by Adobe. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, this gentleman, Joel Rogers, was the director of a, a, a motion comic at the time called World Girl, um, W-H-I-R-L, Girl. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a, a campy... Uh, retro 60s kind of uh, action adventure comedy series that as the program started to develop Flash as, as a program you know things started to move a little bit more so that was kind of my first exposure to like animation the animation process in general storyboarding character design doing layout and so on through this project World Girl and it became successful um, it was the first web cartoon to be picked up on major network, network excuse me which was Showtime Online and um, through that that project, I was able to meet a bunch of different people. And one of those people was a gentleman named Bus Potemkin. You know, rest in peace. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, Bus Potemkin, I believe, was the producers producer of the pilot of Cow and Chicken, and I believe Powerpuff Girls. And mm. someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But he was the project consultant on that series called World Girls, like a side project for him. And um, I was at Visionary Media, which was the company at the time making some copies, and Buzz was there, and he goes, and we were kind of wrapping up towards the end, he was like, hey, LaShawn, so what are you going to do after this? And I was like, oh, you know, I was thinking about, you know, going to college for animation, you know, because at the time, you know, I'd been doing animation for a while, Flash and all of this other stuff, but I still didn't feel like I was legitimate because I didn't have a degree in it. And Buzz looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, what are you talking about, dude? He's like, you're already here, man. (laughs) He was like... He said, if you want to go to school, you better go to school for something else. He's like, he's like, there are kids in college right now paying close to $100,000 yeah. just to be in the position you are right now. And he's like, if you, want to do, if you want to go to college for something, go to college for something else. He's like, you're already in animation. All you need to do is figure out what it is you want to say and what it is you want to do. And that has such a profound impact on my, my mental trajectory of where I thought my future was going in this field because up until that point, I still didn't feel legitimate because I didn't have a degree in it. So Buzz kind of like gave me that kind of like tough love conversation. It was just like, listen, dude, right away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, pull you to the side. You know, once you get into animation, at least in my experience, this was right around the dot-com boom around 99, 2000 in New York City. So um, once you get in, you know, word of mouth gets around, you know, like, Hey, that guy's a good storyboard artist, or that guy's a good character designer, or he's a good layout artist. Word gets around, you start getting gigs. You know, the industry's small. So 
you know, I just started going from gig to gig, you know, and the idea of going to college for animation became less of a reality and going from studio to studio became more of a constant, you know. So um, I just kind of just followed where my talent took me. And that's kind of how I I ushered myself from high school to 2002. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I became an assistant animator for a company called Tape House Tunes. They were doing a lot of the Saturday Night Live cartoons back in the late 90s. Oh, okay. And uh, they were also doing the animation portion of a car- of a television show on Disney called Lizzie McGuire Show. And I was assistant animator on the animation segment. So Lizzie, Lizzie McGuire did that for like a year and a half. And then I started doing a couple of freelance projects. Um, this was back when animation in New York City was still booming. You know, Viacom was big. You had Daria. You had all of these other shows happening in New York City, and I was at the MTV commercial division for a short bit, and then 9-11 hit right around the time the dot-com boom died at the end of 2000, Mm -hmm. and then that was just kind of like, for some reason, the work in animation in New York City just kind of dried up, you know? On halt. Um, And, uh, you know, I was in New York City when that happened, so it was just a crazy time period. I started freelancing for different studios and a couple of independent companies on some projects that kind of went far but not too far, and a couple of projects that didn't go anywhere, but I was able to build relationships. Mm-hmm. And then right around that time, I decided to try my hand at comic books again. Um, right around that, my opportunities for animation started to dwindle, and I did a couple of comic books. Uh, I did a couple comic book runs for a couple of years between 2002 and 2004. And uh, who was that for? This was for Dreamwave, a, a company that's not around anymore. They they have a couple of licenses for. The Transformers license, and a, oh, cool. um, they're doing a couple of uh, retro '80s um, uh, comic book licenses, and uh, but they were a small company. They were around for a bit. They were big for a while, but they kind of came and went, like a lot of comic book companies around that time period. And um, uh, they had the license for Ninja Turtles at the time when Four Kids had it, and I did a couple of is- a few issues of that. Right on. And then I kind of. Uh, Started freelancing again, and uh, I met an individual who would later connect me to uh, uh, to Aaron Magruder, who was the creator of the Boondocks around 2004. Mm. Um, and I was able to be hired to be a supervising character designer and a co-director. So I kind of bounced back into animation production around 2004, and um, I was able to move relocate here to Los Angeles for that opportunity. And then once I started doing the Boondocks, from that point on, you know, the rest is history. So that's as much of a Cliff's Notes version of my <laughs> trajectory from elementary school now, you know, kind of wanting to be a comic book artist, kind of jumping into animation production through design, and then kind of jumping back into comics to come back into animation. So this is an inter- interesting um, uh, pattern. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, so. Now, as a designer, what is your primary duties? Uh, on... Well, if we, if we, on the Boondocks, I was a supervising character designer. So my job was to um, help visualize uh, the ideas from the script. Um, and season one of Boondocks was very hands-on. You know, it was rough for me um, in the beginning. I had a lot of help though. Um, I had a gentleman named David Coleman, a super talented illustrator, um, who was kind of like my right hand right hand man, who was actually designer for the pilot. There was a Fox pilot for the Boondocks that happened, and then I came on board. And became a supervising designer, and Dave was a big help on, with me on that project. Um, and what I would basically do is design the characters, um, get them approved, and then David would help me turn them. Um, 
And most animated shows, at least television shows, I'm not sure how they do it now, but back in 04 or 05, you'd have at least two or three character designers in-house who were helping you. Like you design the stuff, and then you'd have a couple of guys helping you turn it, and then you kind of put it on model, and you know you kind of go back and forth, and and then it would get approved, final line, and then you throw color on it, and then it you know it go through the pipeline. So um, that's kind of changed a little bit now, but not 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 too much, you know. Um, I was a supervising character designer on later, a few years later, on a director video for Warner Brothers called Batman Superman Public Enemies. Mm. And I had a similar situation. I would design the character from the front or three-quarter front, three-quarter, three-quarter rear, and then I would get some help you know, for guys to turn it because there's just so many characters. One person can't do all of that stuff. So you usually have a team of artists. You kind of visualize it, and then you turn it. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's just different for each each production, you know. Okay. Um, I worked on a project uh, later on called Batman Brave and the Bold. I was a storyboard artist on that. And they had a bunch of talented character designers on that. Uh, Linnell Forstall, uh, Stephen Jones. Um, and the producer of that project was, um, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm killing myself here. Uh, <laughs> James Tucker, legendary James Tucker, was the uh, producer. And I was, I was told that James would actually, as a producer, would design characters as well. So it really depends, you know, um, who does what, okay. depending on the nature of, of the show. But traditionally, in any of the projects that I've designed, I've always kind of led the concept design, the front, at least the three-quarter front. And then depending on the strength of the team, they would kind of help me turn characters because you've got to, you know, on, on shows like Boondocks and Black Dynamite, there's so many characters that it's hard to just, you know, turn everything, you know. So you need a team, Um now, do you, do you enjoy storyboarding? That seems a lot like it's in the same vein as comic books. Um, or am I, I think, off on that? I think no. It's I think the I mean me personally, and this is my opinion. I, I can't speak for anyone else. I think the only thing that comic books and storyboards have in common is that they're sequences drawn in boxes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's, so I was that's, way that's, off on there. No, no, you're not. You're you're on the path, but it's not exactly the same. I think a person who's kind of not as is, is not doing both can kind of look at that and go, oh, you know, it's like storyboarding, it's like comic books. But you know, I think comics, um, in my opinion, in my experience, you, you're able to control time a little bit more in comic books because you rely on the gutters. You know, you rely on time passing between from one panel to the next. Uh, and I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible. I think with storyboarding, um, you, you're more going from moment to moment. You know what I mean? Especially now with the programs like, you know, um, Storyboard Pro where, you know, you got storyboard artists who are now trying to, like, literally animate their sequences with their, that they're storyboarding. You're dealing more with with seconds and minutes with storyboarding versus comic books where you can tell a story that's covering, you know, 10 minutes, but that'll take you 24 pages. You know what I mean? Okay, As okay. Comic books and, and storyboarding, it's more of an end to a means, you know? Um, so in comics, you know, you can get away with conveying time in a panel. Uh, you can have a character knocking out, beating up five guys in one panel, and you can convey time in that space with multiple poses and so on and so forth. Storyboards, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, like, there's cuts. You know, you have the guy, guy getting punched once, and then you cut to another. I mean, you can do it all in one shot, but it's still a sense of time you're conveying. So it, it, it's it's a little bit more... It's I, I think drawing comic books... The difference between drawing comic books and storyboarding is comic books, you're kind of doing everything. You're the director, you're the cameraman, you're the lighter, you're the character designer, 
the prop designer, the background designer, <laughs> you know, and in and, and some in many cases, I think storyboarding is a little bit different. Um, you're that as well, but you don't have to finish much okay. because there's because it's filmmaking. It's not just animation is, is not just illustration. It's filmmaking. You know, there's another part of the process that's going to come in. There's going to be a layout artist. There's going to be a background artist who puts those things on model and so on and so forth. So you're kind of playing a role in a bigger picture um, with with storyboarding as opposed to comic books, which is kind of similar. You know, you have an anchor, you have a colorist, but comic books, you're more, it's more logical to get away with doing all of that stuff as one individual. You can write, ink, you know, letter, color your comics all by yourself, whereas it's kind of hard to, you know, you know, animate, ink, color in between right. Akira, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it'll take you a little bit longer. You know? so, and that's the whole purpose of why everything's compartmentalized. It takes so long to finish an animated project usually you need as many people as possible to handle different parts of the process and storyboarding is just one of those okay well this will make a nice segue then into your big project here cannon busters because you're talking about all these components here and that's kind of why you end up wanting to go to uh kickstarter right yeah that's one yeah that's one of the reasons for sure Mm -hmm. now first off let's talk about cannon busters tell us about it a little bit cannon busters was originally a comic book that i created after I finished working on Lizzie McGuire, um, it was it was it was my attempt at kind of gathering everything that I'd learned in the last five years prior to me going back into illustration and kind of putting it. And I was absorbing a lot of a lot of different mediums at the time. You know, manga was big. You know, this is the late '90s, early 2000s. You know, this was right when the anime boom hit America. You know, mm-hmm. tsunami had formed and so on and so forth. So I was absorbing a lot of different stuff, and I was being influenced by a lot of lot of anime. You know, because my style, I've been working in animation for so long. So Cannabis was one of the one of the few ideas I had where I wanted to kind of do like a RPG kind of fantasy, you know, action adventure, feel good comic book series. And it was one of the projects that actually got the attention of uh, uh, the head of Dreamwave, Dreamwave Comic Books, Pat Lee. He had seen my work. I posted these designs on the Dreamwave forums at the time, and he had seen my stuff. Said the stuff was great. You know, we'd love to bring you on board but I was like yo I want to do my comic you're going to publish my comic and he was like no you know we got another plan for you and he showed me this project called Arcanium and that's kind of how I kind of segued into doing other stuff but Cannonbusters was initially the reason why I even got brought on to Dreamwave um, and it was a project that at some point in time I wanted to get to um, and I started to do it as a comic book with Devil's Due and then eventually Udon picked it up uh, Udon is another publisher. They publish comic books, but they also translate a lot of licensed uh, art books that are from Japan and uh, like the Capcom books and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and then eventually, right around that time that I started doing Cannon Busters, the comic book, I got hired to do the Boondocks. So, I, so I'm like, yeah, I could do all of it, you know. And <laughs> obviously, that didn't work out too well. You know, it's really hard to do a bi-monthly comic book and be a supervising director and be a co-director for a hit animated TV show. <laughs> and um, I had to learn the hard way that that was impossible, and one of these things had to give. So being the fact that Cannabuses was my own creation, I said, you know what, I'm going to discontinue it and then continue to work on it at my own leisure and then hopefully be, be able to condense it as a graphic novel. But that didn't work out either because after the boondocks, you know, I got all these other gigs and all these other projects. So eventually around 2009, uh, while still working on this thing at my leisure, I left the country and moved overseas to South Korea. And that was at a point where 
my experience as an animation production artist had caught up with my experience as a comic book illustrator. And I said, well, I've always wanted this thing to be animated. I have an opportunity. I'm around animators. Let me try and produce and direct this thing as an animated short. And that's kind of how it came about. And um, right around the time that I started developing that project and another project, Black Dynamite fell into my lap. <laughs> so it was like, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember how that went went about. Now, you're still in stuff. Korea at this time? Still in Korea at the time when okay. Black Dynamite fell into my lap. Um, so I, uh, I said, hey, I could do all of it. And obviously... <laughs> That didn't work out either. So, you know, I ran out of funding. You know, I ran out of I ran out of money, and and Black Dynamite needed my attention. So I had to move back to America to to you know work on this show at Titmouse, and then we got a second season, and you know we just I just wrapped up on season two a few weeks ago. Oh wow! So, but at the top of January, right when we were reaching the halfway point on Black Dynamite, I started thinking about my next move. You know, when you work on these seasonal TV shows, right when you get around like you know the five to eight week month. Uh, your point of production towards you know you have five or eight weeks left you start thinking about your next move I mean I don't know if anyone out there who works in TV can relate to me but it's like okay I got five months when's my end date okay what's next you know do I jump on another show do I take a break do I work on my own stuff you know so I was kind of hitting that wall and um, right around that time I was building these other organic relationships you know with the, the guys who are, who are part of this project with me um, and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to, you know, try and um, make this thing as a 10-minute pilot, you know. Um, and there was a lot of other things happening, you know, the climate of, of the industry itself. You know, there's an aversion towards action shows now, um, and that's kind of the economy's kind of pushing the studios to go in a direction where the focus is primarily on kid shows and comedy shows, which I love, by the way. But, you know, I still have this secret kind of yearning to do an action-adventure show, um, and I think Legend of Korra at the time is like the only thing that's really kind of holding that down, you know. So um, I said, hey, why not? You know, no one else is, you know, trying to do kickstart an action adventure show in the States. And, you know, uh, let me throw my hat in the fire and see what happens. And uh, and that's kind of how that project came about. So that's right cool. around the time the fall happened, you know, originally we were supposed to be done with Black Dynamite in July. We were supposed to premiere Black Dynamite in July. <laughs> Obviously, that didn't happen you know, because of production issues and stuff like that. So Adult Swim pushed it. You know, so I, I thought, okay, we're premiering in July. I'll probably be wrapped up in August. I'm going to launch my Kickstarter in October. That'll be the perfect time. I'll be done with the series. You know, I'll be able to have this time to develop. But we got, the show got pushed back to October 19th. And I didn't want to push, I didn't want to delay this thing anymore. You know, so I said, you know what, oh, I'm just going to have to launch this baby when, you know, right around the time the series premieres, you know. So that's kind of how that whole thing came about, you know. And I, I you know, I had these relationships with Joe Matt, who ironically uh, decided to help me, you know, on character designs with some of the stuff. And, you know, he's a guy that I envied and admired and idolized growing up as a kid. And he went to art design high school. So that I <laughs> that you wanted to go to. <laughs> You know, so just like, oh, man, full circle moment. Like, you know, I just happened to develop a natural relationship with this guy. He was one of the coolest dudes ever. Just mad cool. And he's from New York City. And he's from New York City. So it was just kind of like, yo, you know, check this out. And he was like, man, this stuff is great. I was like, yo, what do you think about helping me with some designs? And he was just like, yeah, man, I'll help you out. So I was like, yes, you know. and That's cool. Uh, you know, I had met Tim Yoon, who I had met during the production of Legend of Korra. You know, he was the line producer on Legend of Korra, books one and two. And I had met him on my first trip back while I was still living in Korea. 
and I had visited the Nickelodeon offices and met with, you know, hung out with some of the Legend of Korra guys. And they were like, one of the guys was like, hey, man, you know, our producer, Tim Yoon, wants to meet you. And I was like, sure. And Tim happened to be fascinated with my with me moving over to Korea to work, you know, as a subcontracting animator and storyboard artist. So we had a long conversation about the process, the politics, the difference of, you know, workflow here and there. And we kind of developed a relationship over the years. So when this project came out, you know, he had moved on to other projects. I moved on to other projects and I kind of reached out to him and say, hey, man, I could use your help. You know, you you know, the books, you know, the numbers, you know how much things cost. You know, I'm going to do this independent project on Kickstarter. Would you be interested in helping me? And he was like, hell yeah, man, this is cool. <laughs> so it was kind of like a seven samurai kind of thing. You know, we're all just kind of like recruiting, you know, to, to kind of build, you know. Um, Thomas Romain, the co-creator of Code Lyoko and Bosquash and the mecha designer of Space Dandy and among other awesome things, found me online. Uh, ironically, uh, he had seen this lecture that I had done in South Korea in Seoul back in 2012 called, uh, Successful Failures. It was a TEDx talk in Sinchon, Seoul, where I was talking to a bunch of Korean, uh, kids about, uh, over using failure as a method of growth and not something to be afraid of. Mm. And I used my story in Korea about how I was terrified the first six months and me deciding to quit my job and leave my family and my friends to go over here and do this thing. Um, and anyway, long story short, uh, that video kind of gotten around and I guess Thomas had seen it and randomly hit me up on Twitter and was like, Hey man, I saw your, your TEDx talk. I thought that was great. You know, uh, you want, you know, I, I felt the same way cause you know, he's from France. He's a Goblins graduate and he mm. moved, he moved to Japan and that's how I first discovered Thomas was, you know, he was the character designer and the co-director of, of a popular animated show called Oban Star Racers. And it was a show that was the first of its kind. It was a French-Japanese co-production. That's cool. And it looked so cool. And it came with this DVD. You know, I bought the DVD and it came with this making of it. And that was the first time I discovered Thomas. He was on this documentary with these French dudes from Goblins who just moved to Japan. <laughs> they were trying to live in Japan and work in this Japanese studio trying to create this original animated project. It was the most fascinating thing ever. And I think I watched that documentary more than I watched the series. Like, I played that thing while I was working at Warner. I was, like, just inspired by, you know, it's just something about watching animators work and the behind yeah, yeah. animation thing that gets me, gets me wanting to work, you know. It makes me feel like I'm in the studio environment. So, you know, six years later, this guy, I knew, you know, he wound up staying in Japan and becoming a member of Satellite Studio, you know, famous for Macross Frontier, and they worked on Noane and Bosquash and, you know, the executive director is Shoji Kawamori, who's the co-creator of Macross and Escaflot. Like, he, he, he was, like, the foreign, like, he, he was that benchmark for me. Like, wow, like, if this guy can go overseas, you know, maybe I can do it, too, kind of mm-hmm. thing. So he kind of indirectly played a catalyst in giving me the cojones to, like, just kind of <laughs> overseas, you know. So, you know, how serendipitous is it this guy reaches out to me and is like, yo, I saw your com- I saw your, your lecture you know, I'm like, wow, like this is Thomas Romain. So we kind of developed the kind of correspondence via Twitter direct message over a span of three months. And mm-hmm. then right when I started getting my stuff together, I said, hey, man, I've got this project. I, I would, you know, I don't know what your rates are, but, you know, it'd be great to kind of somehow work with you on this project. You know, I'd love for you to do some mecha designs. But he was a staffer at Satellite. So in order for me to work with Thomas, I would have to go through Satellite, which I thought was even better. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know. Being the, the, the fan of, of animation, you know, in, 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 in France and in Japan and, you know, like to be able to have that opportunity, I thought it was great. So 
I had a chance opportunity to go to Tokyo during the July 4th weekend and mm-hmm. um, met up with Thomas, met the, the staff at, at, at Satellite and pitched them this, this Cannon Busters idea like, yo, this is the show. This is the concept. This is what, you know, what I think Thomas would be great for. What do you think? And they're kind of like, hmm, we'll get back to you kind of thing. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, they hit me back. was like, yo, we're translating the pitch. We think this is great. And then, you know, next thing you know, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're working together on this thing and launching it. So it's all kind of very organic. That's awesome. Way of how this whole Kickstarter project came about. Um, and um, it's just, you know, it's just a, it's a unique a very unorthodox project, very unorthodox formation. It's very Thomas Romain likes to call it world animation. You know, <laughs> it's very. I love. I love that description. You know, uh-huh. you got people calling it. Oh, it's anime. It's not anime. Thomas is like, it's just world animation, dude. You've got, you know, Joe Manarero. You've got, you know, Bahi JD, who's from Austria. You've got Thomas from France, who's living in Japan. You got the Japanese studio. You got me. You're like, it's just a very <laughs> international kind of project. You know, and um. Well, that's, this one th- interesting. that's one of the things I noticed on the uh, Kickstarter video is that you mentioned it had elements of hip-hop, Western, steampunk, and it, it being diverse, it made it seem like it was very interesting, very unique. It, it wasn't too linear. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, 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 I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. Now, when you say it's got elements of hip-hop, Western, steampunk, things of that nature, are those different uh, realms, or, or how does that work for Canabusters? <laughs> It's more of a motif, you okay. know. It's, it's uh, if if you look at some of the characters, you know, for example, uh, first of all, the hip hop element of, of Cannon Busters is more subdued. It's more tasteful, if, if, if you will. You know what I mean? Like I, I grew up where hip hop grew up. You know, I've 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 been listening to rap music responsibly for over twenty five years. You know, <laughs> so I've gone through every era. You know, the West Coast era, the, the you know the the Midwest era, the boom bap era, the Southern crunk era, yeah, the trap. You know, like, and I like a lot of it from all of it. You know what I'm saying? And I, I think that one of the things that's always that's always been difficult for me to swallow when people try to interpret hip hop culture. It's always this kind of dated point of view of hip-hop like when people think of hip-hop they think oh run dmc thick gold chains and a b-boy stance and 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 hip-hop is so much more than that now as far as as far as a commercial surface point of view and i feel like my characters aren't going to be walking around with gold chains and finger rings and having boom boxes and rapping like they're not going to break into a rap song like that's a very that's a very corny point of view to me you know what i mean like it's a very on-the-nose presentation of what hip-hop is it's always kind of like Hip hop is so much more than the music. It's 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 kind of a it's an attitude. It's 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 a it's a kind of way of talking. It's a subtle way of talking. It's a subtle way of carrying yourself. That's not. It's more of a compliment or an accent, and not a hey look look at me moment. You know, which is usually what you get when you see people try to incorporate hip hop. You know, you'll have a character who's totally not from that will just be like word. That's the bomb. <laughs> you know, it's just very very forced and very like you know and and and, and so so it's it's. The hip hop representation in Cannabuses will be—you'll know it when you see it, it, but it won't be loud. It'll be very, very, it'll be very, very subdued. You know, like I, I like to bring up a specific animated show. I don't know how many people are familiar with it. Came out a few years ago. It's called Samurai Champloo. And what I liked about Samurai Champloo is that what was hip hop about Samurai Champloo, in my opinion, was the music, and that's it. You had a couple of moments where you had a guy who was like, "Yo, yo, yo," and you know, you had the graffiti episode, and you had. You know, a samurai who was using the butt of his katana blade with the microphone at the end of it. Like, you know, stuff like that. 
but it was very, very subdued, and it still, it still was very Japanese. It was a Japanese representation of what hip hop culture was, or at least what hip hop's interpretation was. And I think with 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 Cannon Busters, it's you'll see it. It's not a very It'll be in the music. It'll be in the way a character carries himself, and maybe in, in maybe the type of shoes a character's wearing, or so on and so forth. But it won't be uh, like, okay, stop the story. Mm-hmm. It's time to rap. <laughs> <laughs> stop the story. I'm wearing a thick gold chain. You know, what I mean? that's not, it doesn't that's, have to be in your face. It doesn't have to be because hip hop was never about that. Mm. You know, its, it's culture was derived from oppression. You know. Mm. It, it came from, you know, the, the, the art programs being shut down in New York City, you know, uh, uh, art supplies being of, 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 of huge scarcity. Like, it came from revolution. You know, it was an outcry. It was a representation of this is who we are, you know. And um, so pe- so many people forget that. The music is the most popular aspect when people think of hip-hop. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and I think that I want to try and incorporate that in a way that's never really been done before and using classic RPG tropes and westerns and you know, steampunk. I think right. those kinds of elements can work really well together. Um, when you combine, you know, uh, when, when you incorporate a, a direction of hip hop culture, it's, it's not all encompassing. It's, it's very subtle. And when you see it, it makes sense. It's not offensive. You know? Right, right. So. It just seems less one dimensional to me. And that's what I think was, it was appealing when I heard kind of these different elements. It seems less one dimensional for uh, this series. Yeah, you know, and I think that because, um, I haven't. You, you don't really see it yet. I have to break it down that way. <laughs> so so far, that's all everyone has to go for. Oh, it's hip hop, steampunk. We have to see that. But when you, it, it is those things. But it's when it's told in a story, it'll be more organic. You that's know? cool. So, yeah. Now, bring it to something like Kickstarter. There was an important comment that you had mentioned there, and it not watering down your vision. Can you explain that a little bit? How, how important was that for you to get this out? Not compromising that. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, well, first of all, I, I have to give uh, props and respect to uh, the the animated projects, high-profile animated projects on Kickstarter that came before me, which actually motivated me to even want to do this. You know, it starts with, you know, Masaki Yuasa-san's Kickheart. He was kind of the first guy last year to really, like, go to Kickstarter and try to make an anime, you know, mm-hmm. or an animated short, you know, coming from Japan. And his success kind of created this snowball effect that convinced Studio Trigger to want to go to Kickstarter to do Little Witch Academia 2, you know. Um, and then Under the Dog, you know, followed, you know, Trigger's success. And then most recently, Urbance followed Under the Dog, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, crowdfunding hasn't been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and most recently, you're starting to see within the last 12 to 15 months animated shorts from high-profile guys being funded, you know, mm-hmm. so um, that was the catalyst for me. So I, I give nothing but props and respect to those guys for for sticking it out. And they all kind of had the similar. They had a similar vein. They said, "Listen, you know, we're either gonna take this idea to a network, or you know, who who who, who may be biased, you know, because they have a business to run as well. Right? You know, they may want to say, listen, this is all we have room for. This is all the stuff we're making.'" You know, or we're just going to try and make it ourselves, which is usually expensive. So I right. think crowdfunding works perfectly for an independent point of view for guys who have experience um, to go to, to to their fan base or their or fans of that particular genre and say, "Hey, listen, this is the concept. These are the guys making it. 
if you want to see this, this is something you can pledge. And if you're not convinced, we'll give you this if you give this much, and so right. on and so forth. So it's a mutual exchange. You Absolutely. Know? And, I, and I think that that's what's really attractive about it is that it gets the creatives involved. Um, and uh, that was kind of, you know, the, that was already happening. You know, I, I had a couple of opportunities with Cannabuses where, you know, I had a couple of investors who were like, hey, this is interesting. We'll invest in this. But how about we make the character this or how about we change that? And I'm just kind of like, damn, that's some nice money. And I've been wanting to make this for a long time. <laughs> Maybe if I just give in and, you know, but then it would change my story completely. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. So that's what I was kind of getting at. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of it's. I'm sure, like you mentioned here, this has kind of been something that's been hidden for a while. You've been wanting to get it out, and you go, okay, well, at what point do I go, this compromises too much of what I want to be able to accomplish with this? Yeah, I agree, and and that's and, and I'm not alone in that. I'm pretty sure there are plenty of creatives out there who – you know, had you know, you know, saw the dollar signs for them. It's like, well, look, you know, this is only my first idea. A lot of times, you know, when you pitch an idea to a show, in my experience, um, you're not going to get the best deal unless you're like Beyonce, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? like, or you have some kind of massive following. You know, they're going to say, listen, man, we we've, we've worked hard all these decades to accumulate millions and millions of dollars of our money. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to go out of business. If you've right. got an idea. And we're going to give you thirty million to produce ten episodes. We're going to have a say in that. You right, know what I mean? Right, I'm, not going to, I'm not. I'm not going to just give away my money and you're just going to do what you want. You know, no one wants to do that. Right, right. And I, but at the same time, you have the creative who's like, "This is my vision." You yeah. know, like, I don't want to change this. Give me your money and let me do what I want. You know, so you have. So you kind of. I kind of see both sides of it. And Absolutely. I think that, I think that a platform like Kickstarter. You know, you, you, I, I've heard people online go, oh, you know, Kickstarter, you're just begging for money. I'm saying, hey, listen, you're going to beg for money anyway. If you're going to go to a network, you're going to ask them to give you their money uh-huh. to make your show. Right. You know what I mean? And chances are, you know, it may not turn out in your favor. You know, most companies are going to think about their, their, their best interests, you right. know. So I, I think what I like about the Kickstarter aspect is that there's kind of a risk versus reward, you know, Exchange, you know, a mutual exchange, so right. to speak. You know, yep. um, there's a community aspect to it, um, and there's a certain kind of pride that comes with saying, "Hey, I helped get that project off the floor," like all the other Kickstarters. You know, so um, I think that's what was attractive to me about it. So the whole, you know, investor thing, the idea is not being what I want versus getting the money. You know, what was happening in the last 12 months with all these other Kickstarters, it was kind of, kind of all leading into this direction of me saying, "Well, you know what? Let me try this." And see which direction I want to go with it. And if I can, if I can, if I can, if I can get like-minded individuals who also want to help me make this thing, who have a, a wealth of experience in their own following, I think it would be a good investment for everyone involved. You know, so yeah. Yeah. that's kind of the direction I chose to go. And, and and you know, who knows how long this Kickstarter window is going to stay open? You know, like, um, but but I do think that, you know, and I mentioned this before. You know, like. You know, I, I don't want people to get me confused or, or misunderstand my stance. You know, I, I love the studio system. I love working for the studios. They pay so well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you know, you, you, you're gaining experience. You, 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 you know, it's it's a community. You're, you're building with other talents. I love working for the studios. But however, it's hard to ignore the the, the opportunity to empower yourself. You know, through Kickstarter to create your own thing, and when you have a, 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 a group of people who are rooting for you, not only with their their positive energy, but with their dollars, with their wallet, 
you know, that's the that's the best kind of focus group. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so for me, I already know what I can do at a studio. And most likely I'll be working for studios again because I just love new projects and new uh-huh. ideas. But, you know, I'm at a point now where it's like, okay, well, let me try this thing right. and see where it goes. And, you know, I, you know, again, risk versus reward. You know, I, I think I think. If it works out in the end, I think it's it's good for everyone, so especially for for a project like this, you know. Absolutely. Um. So so that's kind of my angle on it, as far as like, you know, the, well, the issues between uh, keeping your idea and, and and kind of watering it down for you know another company because they're throwing a lot of money and they want to have a say in it. So right. And, and no, I think you presented the studios. I think very fairly. This is money that they have earned, and they're going. This is an investment for them. Of but, course. But I know, like you, um, I forget one of the guys in your uh, Kickstarter video said there's a limited number of cartoons per year that are, are done here in the U.S. So with crowdsourcing, this seems like it's a great venue for people like you to be able to produce more than that than a studio would normally be willing to produce in a year here in the U.S. or something along that lines. I, you know, I, I can agree with that. You know, uh, uh, a perfect example is uh, Frederator's Being Puppy Cat. You know, that was another wildly successful Kickstarter, you know, that got funded for an entire series, you know, and it's online. Um, I, I just, I like the idea of the option. I think that's what makes yes. me feel a little bit better is that, yeah. you know, I love the studios, but they have their system, they have their money they need to make, and, you know, it, you know, it, it is what it is sometimes, you know, but... With crowdfunding, I, I just like that the option exists. Absolutely. If I'm going to take a risk, I can go in that direction. You know, if it doesn't work out, fine. You know, I, but no one's losing money. You know, no no one's being hurt in the process. You know what I mean? Right, right. And I want you know, and I think that's really really important. You know, you have a lot of people who aren't as educated on the system. They're kind of outside looking in, and they're like, oh, you know, through the studios, and it's like. No, man, that's not. You know, right. the studios are very important. You know, they, I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've been able to have working at you know Sony and Cartoon Network and Warner Brothers. You know, I I wouldn't have the knowledge I have. I wouldn't have the experience or the relationships right. I have if it wasn't for them. But I, I I do enjoy the idea that there's an option that if I'm going to take a risk, you know, I can do that, and it's either going to be a reward or you know. It's not, you right, know, right. But, but I have that option, and I think that's really the most attractive part about it is having the option to go at it yourself. Absolutely. There you go. That's a great great way to put it. Yeah. Now, what are you looking to produce with the, the Kickstarter? Uh, we're looking to produce a, a pilot, uh, a half an act of a 22-minute episode, which is usually 8 to 10 minutes. Okay. Um, and it's 8 to 10 minutes of our pilot episode of our storyline. Okay. So... Um, it's, and that's, I think that's enough time to kind of introduce the characters, kind of tell the story and kind of leave it on a cliffhanger. Sort of like what you, you get out of a lot of, a lot of shows, a lot of animated shows from networks are going in that direction now too. It seems like Adventure Time and Steven Universe are like 11 minute shorts and stuff like that, you know, 11 minute episodes, 10, 11 minute episodes. So, um, that's kind of the direction we want to go. You know, I, I think ultimately, obviously the ultimate goal is to go to series, but, um, I think it's a lot easier to go to series when you have something that's, you know, well produced and, right. and well written, and, you know, and 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 you can shop it around, you know, and you can show that there's easier. an interest in it. Yeah, for sure, exactly. I think it's a lot easier to uh, 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 pitch a show that is realized. And some some studios are unattracted by that. Some studios feel like if it's already finished, they don't feel like they have a say in it at, during the pitching process. But I do think that it's better to have something finished, um, or at least close to your final vision, than not. Because you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always go to, you know, game company or a toy company 
or another studio, you have something, you know, that has an established, you know, look, you know, that, that, that you, you have something that's a proof of concept. So right. Speak, you know, Absolutely. You can roll with. So. Absolutely. Well, LaShawn, I really hope the best for you on this. I hope that this gets you some more exposure for sure. But regardless, this has been a, a great conversation and uh, it's uh, been neat being able to talk with you about it. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You know, um, it's interesting, you know, to see how the, the reaction for this thing, it's, it's overwhelming and, um, you know, it's a learning experience for me and I'm just really humbled and grateful that it's been getting the reaction it's been getting. We've got 12 days left, you know, we're at 84K, you know, we're trying to reach our minimum passion project goal of 120K and right. um, I think I think with enough support and excitement and enthusiasm, we can weather the holiday storm and come out with a win, you know? Awesome. Well, I'm going to have this in our show notes. Is there a a specific link though, in case someone's just getting the audio of this? Um, it's a Kickstarter projects, Cannon Busters, the animated series pilot. All right. Very cool. So yeah, we'll link that, but in case someone just listened to the audio on this, definitely check it out. The promo for the thing sounds great. And I love what you're showing on it already. So I think it's going to be a really cool gig there. Thanks a lot, man. I, I, you know, I couldn't do it without these other fine, talented individuals helping me on this. And uh, I've been getting a lot of help and support. Um, a lot of cats pulled through for me. I pulled a lot of favors on this <laughs> thing. So I'm just I'm just happy that, you know, we're going in a good direction and um, they know who they are. I'm, I'm really grateful for your help so far. So we're almost there. Very cool. All right, LaShawn. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Larry. I appreciate it. Enjoy your evening.